0: Good evening, if you'll turn in your copy of the scriptures to Colossians 1, that is where we will spend our time this evening. I uh, was going through the draft of my sermon last night while I was walking, and uh, I looked at the clock and it had been just shy of two hours, so I hope we won't be that long tonight, but this but uh, this, this has been such a rich study for me. There are, there are times when I'm preaching and, and the heaviness and weight of the God's word comes into consideration and you almost feel a burden and, and a, a real heaviness when you're preaching. And there are other times, and this is one of those, where it's just so rich, it just fills you with joy and thanksgiving at what God reveals to us and, and the reality and truth of it and I have been so greatly blessed, um, certainly through your prayers in the Word of God, um, as I've studied for this. And, I, and it's my prayer that the Spirit of God would open up His Word through my tongue to your hearts as well, and that you would also be richly blessed and, and to be strengthened in the Lord. So let's ask for His help before we begin. Father, we are Entirely dependent this hour on your spirit, and if he is not at work, no good will happen. Um, I need your spirit to speak the right words in the right way, and each one here or listening online needs your spirit to understand in the right way and to apply it. Father, we desire that this time would be spent to help us know you better, and to walk before you more rightly. And we pray, and we plead, and we ask that as you have promised, you would send your Holy Spirit to do this great work in us and through us. Please bless this time for your own honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to read. The prayer that we're studying tonight is verses 9 through 12. Of Colossians 1, but I want to start back in verse 1 and read verses 1 through 12 to get kind of a running start and to understand the context of the prayer. Colossians 1, starting in verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. As we open up this prayer, one of the questions that we should start with is how do we interpret and then apply this prayer, maybe starting with the end before the beginning. These are direct prayers that we've been studying in the context of life, which then require us to properly interpret. For example, the prayer of Daniel that we studied a few months ago we 'd no longer pray for some kind of a physical restoration of Jerusalem like Daniel was praying we We no longer confess the sins of our nation in the same way that he confessed the sins of Israel, the covenant people of God, but we do confess sin with the same depth of sorrow and honesty and recognition of God's holiness. And we do pray for God to fulfill his promises. And as Rusty so clearly brought out, we pray primarily for the glory of God, as, as the holiness of his name to be upheld in his church and in his people and throughout the world. So how then do, do we understand and imply, apply this prayer of Paul? And I want to give you four trains of thought four channels to which we can take these truths and apply them the first one quite simply is that we live it out what paul prays for here is his desire for how the colossians should live and it is instructive then to us for how we also ought to live what he prays for what he teaches the truths he says and the motivations and inspirations that he gives that ought to be borne out and shown in how we live as well Second, and also quite obviously, we pray this for each other. Who is Paul praying for? He's praying, verse 2, for the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. So we, learning from this, can also pray this for the brothers and sisters, the faithful saints here in Wichita at New Hope Bible Church. Further on this, we read and we can learn that Paul was praying this for people he didn't even know personally In chapter two, verse one, he says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. So in this church in Colossae, in the church of Laodicea, to whom this letter would also be read, there were some that Paul did not know personally, had never met him personally, but he's also praying for them. And so for our own application, it's easy to pray this for the brothers and sisters who we are close to, who we know in depth, intimately. But those ones we, we don't know as well, the ones who we are maybe more distant from, this is what we ought to pray for them also. Notice he says, we have not ceased to pray for you. We ought to be faithful then in praying this for all of each other. And this is, this is also wonderful. Maybe I don't get the time to spend knowing every aspect of your life, but I can pray this with confidence for you, knowing that it is God's will for your life and knowing that this is what God desires for you and you for me. And so we pray this for each other in this church. Thirdly, we ought to pray this for the churches that we support, that we are planting, not just the missionaries, but the everyday normal believers. And this actually might be closer in terms of Paul's relation to the Colossians. See, we are in a church with each other, but the Colossian church was not Paul's home church. If you wanted to give him a home church, it would have been the one in Antioch. This was a church Paul had planted. And so he writes from this position of accountability, of planting and seeing them grow up in the Lord. And he prays this for the individual believers that they would grow in this. And so too, We ought to, without ceasing, in a faithful, consistent, constant way, pray in this manner for the normal and everyday believers of the churches where we are co-laboring. Our job is not just merely to put finances, but it's to pray, and we understand that. And we pray for those missionaries, but even for the normal Christians, the ones whose names we don't know and faces we have not seen, We ought to pray this for them. This is God's will for their life and this is what he desires and this is what we ought to desire. This is how invested we ought to be that our heart's desire is for their sanctification and holiness as laid out in this prayer. Lastly, fourthly, it is instructive to us in terms of how we relate to each other in requesting prayer. What Paul prays for here is what he wants the Colossians to think of primarily as their needs. This is what Paul sees as the greatest need in their life, and we see throughout the scriptures prayer given, and it should instruct us where the the primary aspects for prayer are, what is essential in Paul's mind versus what is maybe uh, less uh, important, and so too what Paul prays for in this prayer should be top of mind and most pressing in our hearts when we ask for prayer from each other and when we share our requests. So we live it out, we pray for each other, we pray for those churches where we are laboring, supporting, planting, and this is how we ask and think about prayer even for our own lives. So I I got stuck again in the context and I I, want to just hang out a second in verse 3 Because as you're reading this, Paul starts in verse nine, he says, so from the day we heard, and that calls us back to verse three and four, where he says this, we always thank God, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Since we heard, and this is what he was hearing about in verse nine, of your faith in Christ Jesus, of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you, in heaven. We always thank God when we pray for you. Now, this is common among Paul's epistles. We know this. I mean, how many of us could almost recite a certain formula that is present in over half of Paul's epistles? He introduces him, Paul. He greets the church. Maybe he says uh, he's an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Maybe he mentions the brother that he's riding with, He says, grace and peace to you, this whatever body of believers he's praying for. Then he says, I thank God every time I pray for you. And then he writes down what he prays. In Romans 1, 8, he says, first, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed or well-known in all the world. 1 Corinthians 1, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus Ephesians 1, 15 and 16, another prayer. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Philippians 1, verse three. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Every time I remember you, I thank God. Always, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. Every time Paul thought of the Philippians, he was thankful to God and he made his prayer with overflowing joy. First Thessalonians 1, we give thanks to God always for all of you. Second Thessalonians 1, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, as is right. It's only appropriate, it's only fitting that we give thanks to God for you, brothers, he says, because your faith is growing abundantly. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And finally, to the individual Philemon, he says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers. This is not a one-time deal. There was nothing particularly special or praiseworthy about the Colossians. Rather, this is Paul's very attitude, it seems, towards all these churches and individuals that he's writing to. It seems to just bubble up and overflow from the surface. And it begs the question of you, as it does for me, what is your attitude when you think and remember the believers in this body? When you pull into the parking lot on a Sunday morning and a Wednesday evening, what are you thinking? How are you feeling? What's your disposition, to use a big word, what's your attitude more than just are you thankful, and most of you would say, of course I'm thankful for my brothers, but how do you feel when you think of them, and and what it brought out in me, and let me confess to you, I of course said I was thankful for you all, but when I thought of you all, it was less of this overflowing thankfulness and joy that Paul seems to be experiencing, and maybe a little bit more sluggish and apathetic, where I'm, I'm thankful generally that I have a good church, but there wasn't this overflowing joy and thankfulness that that seemed to just spring forward every time he thought of these believers. And maybe that is your life as well, that we get caught up in an apathetic, distant feeling for one another rather than this thankfulness to God. Or maybe in your prayers, how often do you thank God for brothers and sisters in this church, not for specific areas that they helped you. Of course, we thank God when Phil Cook helps us fix our car or when, when the families join together and bring meals in our time of need or our time of busy season, when someone goes out of their way to give a gift or catches up on coffee, something, something that happens to us, it's a blessing, we feel encouraged. Of course, we're gonna thank God for that, but that's not what Paul is writing about. He does occasionally thank God for specific instances of grace in the believers, but this is an overflowing thankfulness just for the existence, it seems, of the believers. And so then what is your primary feeling, your disposition towards the fellow saints here in this church? And let's extend it then to the believers overseas where we minister and labor. Are we often, without ceasing, feeling and bubbling over with thankfulness for each other. And, and if you're like me, you have to struggle with that. That's not natural. We can often get caught up in our own lives and in everything happening around us, and we can even have quarrels with each other. Paul writes, and, and James writes, and, and the apostles write about having unity, because th- clearly we can have quarrels and arguments with each other. So how do we cultivate This attitude that Paul seems to have of always thanking God for each other. And it's it's quite simple, yet supremely difficult. The reality is, we need to stop thinking about each other in an earthly way and consider each other first as spiritual creatures. Look at what Paul is thanking God for here in verses 4 and 5. He says, Why do we thank God? Because we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, the love you have for all the saints, and because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Faith in Christ Jesus, love for the saints, and hope in God for eternity. What causes this? It's not some particular thing the Colossians had done. No, it was the work of God in their lives which is always a sure and stable reason for thanksgiving. It was faith in Christ that God had given them. It was love for the other believers, which is given to them by the Holy Spirit. And it was the hope which the work of God had secured for them fully and finally. Now, lest you think it's in the Colossians alone, let's look back at these other verses that we just read talking about how often Paul is thanking God. In Romans 1, what does he thank God for? He says, because your faith is well known in all the world. In Ephesians 1, because I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and of your love toward all the saints. In 1 Thessalonians 1, I thank God always for all of you, remembering your work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. 2 Thessalonians, we ought always to give thanks to God for you because your faith is growing and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. And in Philemon, I thank God because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. It is not the performance of the believers which drives Paul to praise. It is beholding the miracle of God's grace at work in their life. It is the finished work of grace that granted them faith. It is the ongoing work of grace that increased the demonstrations and affections of love for one another. And it is the promised work of grace that will restore them complete, full, perfect to their inheritance in the presence of God. We need to stop thinking about each other primarily like the world does. Isn't this what Paul says? He says, we no longer know anyone after the flesh. We no longer know Christ after the flesh. Everything has changed. We are not to each other primarily our occupation, our marital status, our political viewpoints, similar or differing stages of life easy or difficult to get along with, homeschooled, not homeschooled, you name it, any descriptor falls by the wayside. As Paul writes later in the same epistle, here, that is in Christ, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Or consider Ephesians 2. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You and the person sitting next to you is no longer stranger and alien from God. They were, but they're not anymore if they're a believer. And you're no longer strangers and aliens from each other. But together you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. And in him... You individually and corporately are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the one thing that matters above all. It supersedes any other descriptor that we can give each other. And it's just this. We are in Christ. How then can we not be thankful? We're thankful for the work of God in our own lives. We have to be thankful for our own salvation. How then can we not be thankful that this person, these people around you, they've been granted faith. God has saved them. God has made them to love the assembly of saints rather than hate the light as they would. God has transferred them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son in glorious light. How can we not thank God for each other that one day this person, these people, will join you in glory without sin, perfectly restored in Christ to worship and serve the king for all of eternity. That no matter what happens to them in this life, that Christ has bought them and secured them to be his own forever. They don't deserve it. They haven't earned it. It's not their good works that have set them in this way. But God has set his love on them. They are beloved of God. And he has chosen them to be his own. They are adopted and brought in to be children of the heavenly father. He has made them fellow heirs with his son. Their life has been redeemed from corruption and they have been created in Christ Jesus to walk in good works. How can this not produce joy in us for one another? And as an aside, it's really, really difficult to have a quarrel with someone that you truly thank God for. You can't do both. If if you're thankful from the heart for God's work in them, you will be moved to praise and thanksgiving and joy. And, And you really will not be able to continue in a selfish anger or bitterness or resentment towards them. Or if you hold on to that anger and resentment for something that they've done or whatever, you really won't be thanking God for his work. Why? Because when we focus on each other, we will let each other down. We will disappoint. We will fail each other. We will sin against each other. And there will be reason, humanly speaking, to be offended even though charity should cover a multitude of sins. But when we work, look at the perfect work of God in their life, we can find no fault. We can find nothing wrong. We can find only cause to praise and thank God because his work is perfect and eternal And no matter what is happening in their life, we can praise God that one day he is bringing them home. They are alive in Christ. We must then labor to cultivate this mentality. Let let us marinate in the reality of what God has done for each other so that springing forward out of us, bubbling over, overflowing, is a fervent thanksgiving to God for one another. We always, Paul writes, thank God when we pray for you. Verse 9. So, the prayer itself. He says, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. A prayer full of incredible phrases and and clauses full of glory so that we could pr- probably spend a sermon on each one to dive into the depths of truth behind each one. But we have not much time left. So I want to go through each phrase and, and, and each one, we have to understand it and, and then stack it up with the next one to get us this whole picture and panorama of what Paul prays for as each one builds on the next. And each phrase then is, Created with, with particular words, powerful words, not junk words that, that each carry significance. So let's dive into this first phrase that we would be filled with the knowledge of his will. That's God's will. What is God's will? What does it mean to know God's will? What is the knowledge of God's will? And then what does it mean to be filled with the knowledge of God's will? Now there's plenty of attention and time and books written and effort, and even probably people praying to try to figure out what the will of God is for their life. And this is mostly and commonly as in, I have to figure out what's the next year going to bring for me? What's the next five or ten years going to happen? Who should I marry? What job should I take? What career should I pursue? What house to buy or should I buy a house? where to live, where to go to church, what investment to make, what ministry or evangelism to get involved in, and the list goes on and on and on of how we want some inner peace, some sense of direction for what we should do and some kind of even prophetic knowledge of what's to come. But that really what it means to be filled with a knowledge of God's will. I found a helpful section of R.C. Sproul's book, Essential Truths of the Christian Faith, Too lengthy to quote here, but I will draw on his structure uh, and include several quotes. So refer to that for for a a wonderful brief in terms of a book, Description of the Will of God. When we speak about the will of God, we we do so in in three ways, three different ways. One would be the sovereign will of God. Two, the preceptive or commanded will of God. And three would be the dispositional will will of God, or what God's attitude is. Let's go into each one. The broader concept of God's will is known as his sovereign will, his decretive will. By this, theologians refer to the will of God by which he sovereignly ordains everything that comes to pass. As in Ephesians 1, we were predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. Or Daniel 4, When he does, as Nebuchadnezzar says, God does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Or in Acts 2 and 4, when the preachers are saying that Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God or that Pontius Pilate, Herod, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together against Jesus to do whatever God's hand and God's plan had predestined to take place. Everything that has happened and everything that will happen has originated in this sense from the sovereign will of God. History itself is the unfolding of God's perfect purposes and plan. Secondly, we understand the will of God as the preceptive or commanded will of God. It is what God commands us to do and to obey and how to live our life in this sense, the scriptures either give us particular commands that are the will of God or speak of doing the will of God. A few months ago, we were in Mark 3, and Jesus talks about who is his brother, his mother, and his sister. He's talking about spiritual life and relation rather than physical or blood relation. And he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. 1 Thessalonians 4 says, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual morality, and se- several other commands. After that, the will of God is that you be holy, that you abstain from sexual morality. First Peter two: This is the will of God that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Or Hebrews thirteen, that great prayer or promise that the God of peace, who brought you brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great Shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant, will equip you with everything good so that you may do his will. How these two, the sovereign will of God and the commanded will of God interact, Sproul says this, though God's sovereign will is often hidden from us until after it comes to pass, as in we don't know what the next day will bring until it happens. That is God's secret and sovereign will. Though that is often hidden from us, there is one aspect of God's will that is plain to us, his preceptive will. It is the will of God that we be holy. It is the will of God that we do not steal. It is the will of God that we repent, that we love our enemies. This aspect of God's will is revealed in his word as well as in our conscience by which God has written his moral law upon our hearts. So, the second aspect of the will of God is the clearly revealed commands and instructions given in the Bible. Thirdly, and Sproul says, the third way the Bible speaks of the will of God is with respect to God's will of disposition or his, his attitude. This will describes God's attitude, it defines what is pleasing or displeasing to him. For example, God takes no delight in the death of the wicked, God is pleased when we find our pleasure in obedience. He is sorely displeased when we are disobedient. And this is very much aligned with the commanded will of God. God hates sin and he loves what is good. So the three parts of the will of God are the sovereign will of God, the commanded will of God, and then the character or attitude of God, what God delights in and what he hates. So what is then the knowledge of God's will? Is it like we said before, knowing how we should live our life in the future with some particular bent towards career or what's going to go on in the next five or ten years or whatever? But in all these matters, if that's what it is, it's chasing after the sovereign will of God, the secret will that he's not always revealed. Sproul says bluntly, if the will we are seeking is his secret or hidden will, then our quest is a fool's errand. Knowing God's will is not about knowing the secret paths your life will take. It's not having some divine or inner peace about a career choice or a life decision. It's not even praying over some matter in your life until you feel good about the decision you make. The knowledge of God's will is akin to saying knowledge of the scriptures because it is in the scriptures that God clearly reveals his commands for your life. It is in the scriptures that we have the only sure knowledge of God's sovereign will. And in the scriptures, we see the character and disposition of God revealed. We see what he loves. We see what he hates. We see what pleases him. We understand from the sovereign will of God what his past and future purposes are, that he will unite all things in Christ, what he has done in the past. We have glimpses revealed in scripture of why he did that and what his plan and purpose was. And we know in glory... And in eternity, what his future plan is. That is enough of the sovereign will of God for us. In the scriptures, we revealed the perfect will of God in all its noble forms. You want to understand what can be understood of God's sovereign will? It's revealed in the scriptures. So what does it mean then to be filled with the knowledge of his will or filled with the knowledge of scriptures The word filled is related in root form to the word we studied just a few weeks ago where at the end of the feeding of the 5,000, it says that all of them ate and were filled. They were satisfied. They were full. There was no need for anything else. There was no lack. There was no wanting. All they needed for their physical sustenance was provided in that meal. It's also related to the idea of fulfillment of prophecies, When all that had been spoken had come to pass, it was filled up. The time had been fulfilled. There was no time left. It was now. And all that had been written had come to life. So in the knowledge of the scripture, it is to be filled to overflowing. It's to have no room or or, or part lacking in any other way. The scriptures have invaded every part of your life. There's no more room, as it were, for false teaching, false doctrine, or false ways of thinking. Your attitude is shaped by the scriptures. Your private thoughts are filled with the scriptures. Your conversations with other people, your decision-making process, your whole worldview and perspective, your life and everything in it is conformed to the scriptures and transformed by the scriptures in every way as spoken of in Romans 12, verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, by the scriptures, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And on to the next phrase, he says, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, this is a really important phrase because we might think to ourselves, okay, great, I need to be filled with the knowledge of God's will. So what I'm gonna do, I'm gonna study really hard, like I might study for a test. I'm gonna devote myself. I've gotta be, have a really high IQ or, or some physical effort and work. I'm going to memorize. I'm going to become the most knowledgeable person in this whole church about the Bible. If someone wants to quiz me on it, I know the verse. If someone wants to challenge me on memory, I got them. But that's not what it is. It only comes in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. The proper and useful knowledge of the word of God comes only in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. By the spirit of God. 1 Corinthians 2, Paul writes, we impart this, this spiritual wisdom that he was talking about, in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The Word of God can only properly understand and usefully be understood by the work and revelation of the Spirit of God. Your hard work and your effort will yield no results if the Spirit of God is not at work in you to open your mind, your eyes, and your heart to understand with spiritual understanding. For this reason, Paul prays for the Ephesians, that God would give them the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him, that they would be strengthened with power through His Spirit in their inner being, We must have the Spirit of God in our reading and understanding of the Scriptures. The concept of wisdom and understanding could be elaborated at great length, but suffice to say that this is not just some factual knowledge. Paul's prayer for the Colossians is not that they become well-informed fact boxes about the Bible. It's not about them winning Bible trivia or being able to memorize more than anyone else. It is the concept, the reality, that they, by the Spirit of God, would grasp the word of God to know it inside and out to know how it applies to their lives and to others lives how to obey and to use the word of God how to understand how to live it out and to grasp how each part fits with each other and to have a robust and thorough theology and doctrinal foundation it is not the Christian life it is not Paul's prayer that any believer would walk in ignorance or a shallow understanding of theology Paul's prayer in the will of God is that we be rich and deep in our knowledge, understanding, and wisdom in all of the will of God, of why he has done what he has done as far as it is revealed in Scripture, his sovereign will, of what his commands for your life are and of how who, who he is like, what he is like, what are his attributes, his nature, his character. So this verse can be summarized as saying that I pray for you that by the working of the Spirit of God, you might be overflowing with a rich and proper comprehension of the Scriptures so that you know would know what God is like, what He has done, and what He has commanded you to do. But it doesn't stop there, and this is great for us and, and challenging maybe for us because in a church that preaches the Word of God and is filled with the Word of God and wonderful resources, it might be a pitfall for us to say, then I will devote myself by God's grace and by the Spirit of God to study the Scriptures and know it inside and out. And we devote our lives to knowing all theology and all this doctrine. But it happens in almost an academic fashion where it remains in our head, but little of it moves to our hands or our feet. So Paul prays and writes that we would be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, for the purpose of, or so as to, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. If our study of the Bible leads to a dry thought, theology or knowledge, but a life that is untransformed, that looks little different from the world, we've done it wrong. When you really have not come to a spiritual understanding of the Scriptures. The Bible uses the word walk to describe the commonplace pattern of someone's life. The ordinary habits and character displayed the sum and substance of who they are and how they behave. Psalm 1, Blessed is the man who does not walk after the counsel of the ungodly. That is, he does not pattern his life after the teachings or the expectations or the habits of the ungodly people around him. Romans 6 Walk in newness of life. From the day you were immersed into Christ for all of eternity, you are to walk in a new way. Ephesians 2, walk in good works which God has created for you. Ephesians 4, do not walk like your old life, like the Gentiles. Walk in love. Walk as children of light in Ephesians 5. Walk in a manner that is worthy of God. What, what does that even mean? How can it be worthy of God? How can your life, your ordinary life, changing diapers and writing reports, filing your taxes, cooking and cleaning and doing laundry, talking to your neighbors, mowing your grass, sharing the gospel, how can that aspire to this height that it is worthy of God? It's appropriate, it's the fitting response to God. That is astonishing it is really challenging. And I love it because it it doesn't put our sanctified life in terms of do's and don'ts or a list of rules or into categories of uh, of how we measure ourselves, comparing to each other. What it does, it takes the the measuring line and it raises up and says, your life and everything about it should be worthy of Almighty God, of the holy, 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 Holy God of the universe. And there are two ways we can, we can think about this, both very helpful. The first, is your life worthy of God in terms of his absolute character? Like, like a child's behavior can reflect on the parent. Like in ancient times, the ambassador or the behavior of the ambassador or the, the uh, uh, emissary of a king or a kingdom reflects on the, that nation. Even in current times, um, is your life reflective and bring honor to the king that you say you represent, to the king that you say that you serve, to the father who has made you his own child, to the God who is yours? And certainly in the Old Testament, many commands, many rebukes were given because the nation of Israel, their lives and their way that they had fallen into idolatry brought dishonor to the name of God. And there were commands given and exhortations given that they would be a peculiar people to show the nations around them what kind of a God Yahweh was. 1 Peter 1 quotes the Old Testament, verses 14 through 16, and adds to it. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passion of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you shall also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. The bar is the holiness of God. And looking at that, we see our standard. And our life then should reflect what we see in the holiness of God. Ephesians 5, be imitators of God as beloved children. Matthew five forty eight: you must be therefore perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 1 John 2, whoever says he abides in him in Christ ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. And this is so tied then to being filled with the knowledge of the scriptures, because as we see who God is and what he is like, we are then instructed in how we ought to pattern our lives. What does he love? What is he like? This is who we ought to be. And so the measuring bar and the standard to which we aim our whole life is God himself. Our life should be worthy of God. But that's that's not it because it just, it just gets better. Ephesians four and First Thessalonians two and Philippians one are three similar way, turns of phrases where he says that we should have our manner of our life be worthy of something. Here they are: Ephesians four one, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. First Thessalonians two twelve, walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. Philippians one twenty seven only this, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Firstly, we let our life be worthy of the very nature and character of God. But secondly, our life should be worthy of the work of God in our life. What is the calling that we've been called to? What is the work of God in our life? What has God done for us? What is the gospel? He's called us into his own kingdom and glory. That should produce a certain kind of life. The the only proper and worthy response to this is what our life ought to look like. How we order, order and organize and pattern our life should be a direct response also to what we see in the past and even in the future of what God has done for us. It should be worthy of the God who crushed his own son to bring you into his family. It should be worthy of the God who called you when you hated him to be his own beloved child. Ephesians 1, God has chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. The connection, God called and God chose us. The purpose ultimately is that we are holy and blameless before him. Our life should be lived in a holy and blameless way as a direct response to that. That God is rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That's the calling that we've been called with. Or that, as Paul will write in just a few verses, that the Father has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. That he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This, this, is what God has done. And our life then should be lived, worthy as an appropriate response to that. Like the song we sang, Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I arose, went forth, and followed thee. Or as the other hymn writer puts it, actually I think it's the same hymn writer. No, it's not. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Paul writes to the Corinthians that Christ died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The way You do everything in your life. Even the very ordinary things should be rooted and grounded and and aimed towards and, and responses to not just in the doing of it but also in the emotional, worshipful response in a way that is worthy and reflective of the God who has made you his own. Let's move on fully pleasing to him. Again, God focused, focused on God. Our bar in aspiration, but also then how we consider ourselves is not our own standard, it's not each other, but it is to be fully pleasing to God. And this is a sense of joy and sweetness to it because the reality is we can be pleasing to God. Romans 8 says that the ones who are in the flesh cannot please God. There is no joy of God in them in what they're doing. But Christ, as the perfect one, God says in him, I am well pleased. The reality is, and, and, and you who have been in Christ sometime know this and have felt this, that as you walk obediently to the Lord, the sweetness of his smile upon your life of knowing he is near to you, that you are walking in obedience and in a way that is pleasing to him. Sometimes even in the darkest and hardest of circumstances, that, that is life. That is wonderful. 1 Thessalonians 4, this is not the only time Paul exhorts people to be pleasing to God. He says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you have received from us how you ought to walk and to please God just as you are already doing, that you do so more and more. In a another way, it reminds us that no man can serve two masters. That to live in this way, as written by Paul here, is to leave all others. Second Timothy 2.4 No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. If your life is to be pleasing to God... You have to forego pleasing any other way of life. It has to be primary. You cannot serve God and mammon, Jesus said. You cannot serve God and anything else. You cannot try to have a life that's kind of obedient to God and keep some of the world in you. You either are fully pleasing to God in how you live your life, your aim and your one desire is wholeheartedly that I might please God, or it is not. Bearing fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit. The outward sign of an inward life. Matthew 7, Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. Only the good soil bore fruit in the parable of the soils. Matthew 13 As for what was sown in the good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. And to walk in darkness is to be unfruitful, Ephesians 5 says. We are to to bear fruit. But bear fruit in what? And this is, again, instructive because you can imagine, as has been happened throughout history, someone reads the first part of this, they read other things like, okay, what I'm going to do? I'm going to get my Bible, I'm going to leave everybody. I'm going to go out into the desert, I'm going to go into a building and lock myself up, and I'm just going to study the word of God so I'm filled with the knowledge of his will, and I'm going to be fully pleasing to God. But that's, that's not the end of it. We're to bear fruit in every good work, and we bear fruit in every good work towards other people. Good works are done in front of and to other people primarily, although the good works of obedience to God are are to God and and not necessarily always to other people. But listen to these. Matthew 5, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Acts 9, talking about Dorcas, that she was full of good works and acts of charity. Jesus was the one who went about doing good in his miracles and his healing and his teaching and his compassion, the scripture are given and we tie it all together again. 2 Timothy 3, the scripture is given that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. Hebrews 10, we ought to consider how to stir up one another. It's coming a violent pushing, provoking. We ought to push each other to love and good works. And then Titus, read the book of Titus, it's full of good works. Clearly not that we're saved by them, but that this these people of God are to be devoted good works. Of the unbelievers, he says they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good works. To Titus himself, show yourself in every respect to be a model of good works. The purpose that Christ saved us. Two fourteen. Christ gave himself for us to re- why to redeem us all from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Christ desires that you be zealous, given over to good works. What Paul wants Titus to remind the people, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, and to be ready, prepared for every good work. Titus three fourteen. let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help in cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. Christian life is not, a solitary life where we care not about other people. It is a life given over, devoted to, ready for good works. You can think of the sprinters you might watch in the upcoming Olympics as as they prepare and they they tense their bodies up on those starting blocks so that as soon as the sound of the starting pistol reaches their ears, they will spring into action, pumping and, 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 and running hard. So too, In some sense of readiness, we ought to be so ready, so opportunistically waiting, eager, zealous, so that whenever an opportunity for a good work comes on, we're on it. We love it. We're there. We're devoted to this. We're given over. We're not apathetic or, or somehow, just oh, if a good work comes along, I'll do it. And I guess I don't hate good works. No, this is this is a bearing fruit. We're to be very fruitful in every good work. All of the good works in in Romans 12 of hospitality, of love for one another, of giving to one another, and all these things written to each other and to the world, we are to be bearing fruit in every one of them. And so our life then is given over, not before men to do works for their praise. Again, fully pleasing to God, but rich and full of works so that people can see them and glorify God. Finally, in verse 10, we have the intimate relationship with God. And it brings it again full circle, relationally to God, not based on performance, not focused on what we're doing, but that, he says, increasing in the knowledge of God. It's the same word, root form, that's used for intimate relations between a husband and a wife. You already probably know that, but this is often prayed for the people of God. Paul, as a great example in Philippians 3, counts everything as lost so that he would know Christ, that he would experience him. John 17, this is eternal life, abundant, rich life, that they would know you and Jesus Christ who you've sent. And so our life is this ever-increasing, growing, thriving sweet and intimate relationship with God where He is fellowshipping with us and we are drawing near to Him and more and more our delight is just in Him. And He is meeting with us and communicating and revealing by His word more of His beauty and His sweetness. And it becomes not about how much we do and whether or not we're doing this or that, but our delight is... We want God. And the great delight and desire of our eyes is to be near God. So with the psalmist we can say, Who am I, I in heaven but you? And there is no one on earth, nothing that I desire except for you. We're increasing in that intimate, sweet, relational, experiential knowledge of God. And so verse 10 all put together can be summarized in this way, that the proper comprehension of the scriptures will lead to this, a fully complete Christian life. Our motivation will be right. Our standard will be right. Our mindset will be right. Our actions will be right. We'll have the proper perspective on our whole life. We'll be given over entirely to doing your works, not for the praise of men, simply for the praise of God and at the center of it all, inspiring and empowering and, and the goal of it all is this thriving and growing experiential relation and communion with God our Father. Verse 11. How are we going to do this? Being strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Let's start at the back of this one. The purpose for being strengthened is for endurance and patience. The prolonged waiting for something we expect, like in Romans 8, that what we hope for, we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Or the continued bearing with an unpleasant offense. It's even used for God's patience for people sinning against him that though they offended him and sinned against him in his patience, and his long-suffering and kindness, he did not respond with wrath immediately, but displayed his patience like Paul. I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience. We are to be patient and endure, in joy. And in what, though? In everything he has just written, You're supposed to live this life, but it's not in a vacuum. You know what's arrayed against you. Your own self, you're weak. You can't even live up. If if you had nothing else outside of you to tear you down and attack you, you still would be unable to endure and patiently day after day with joy walk in the way we just described. You felt that and I have felt that. But beyond that, the whole world is arrayed against us. If you are believers, Jesus says they will hate you. They are not your friends. The devil stalks around seeking to destroy you. How then do you think that you are gonna live out this type of life to the glory of God every day, every second until either the return of Christ or when he calls you home in death? You would be mad, deluded to think that you have some kind of strength to do this in your own but, but often we don't feel our need. We th- we, and I think this is because we can, we can lower that. We're content with a life that really doesn't live up to that standards. We're kind of content in this half in the world, half in Christ, or, or content with some allowance of sin and worldliness in our life. And when that's the standard, you can do that. But if you raise the standard and you realize the war that you're in, And and, and I will tell you this, on Saturday nights, when you go down and see the sin in front of you, you realize that you have nothing in of yourself to offer. When you go and evangelize, you realize, I cannot change a single heart. Only by the power of God will anything good happen. And this ought to be true then, and we think about even our sanctification. Yes, we labor. Yes, we ought to be filled with the knowledge of his will. But if we think we have some kind of strength and power to make this happen on our own, we are deceiving ourselves. But thanks be to God. He has not left us without strength because Paul prays and we know from other scriptures that we can be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might and and, and what Ephesians says is that this power is already at work in us. Verse 19 of chapter one, he says that we would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ. God's power is freely available by the Spirit to us. Ephesians 3, that we would be strengthened with power through his Spirit. Ephesians 6, I would be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Or even a slightly different description of this, Galatians 2, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Christ who lives in me. It's not my power or my strength or my effort that's causing me to be able to live this way. It is Christ in me. And so too, to live this way day in and day out with patience, endurance, keeping the right mindset, keeping our eyes to what we long for and wait for, and having our lives still filled with joy and not be these dull, sad Christians that are just focused on the dark world around us, to do that, we must be strengthened by the power of God. And he is powerful. It's his glorious might, the same power that raised Christ from the dead. Lastly then, in verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And in case you forgot this, it's almost full circle and this ties so clearly with that endurance and patience with joy. How can you have joy? You look at the world as dark. You look at your own self, you're weak. But we can have joy because of the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. This is rich from beginning to end. But let me just briefly then focus on the end part of it of our inheritance. And light. Yes, this looks back to the qualifying work, the gospel that we, we already have seen, that God has already finished this work in us, and that is so full. But but it also then looks forward with joy to, to one day a future inheritance that we will have. According to First Peter, he says, it's inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It's kept in heaven for you. It cannot pass away. It cannot change. It cannot diminish one little jot or or, or iota. What kind of inheritance is this? Revelation 21. The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, they will be his people. God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain any more. For the former things have all passed away, and he who is seated on the throne said, I am making all things new. Revelation 22 There will no longer be anything accursed, nothing sinful, nothing against God in there. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And you, his servants will be there you will worship him you will see his face your name god's name will be on your forehead the night will be no more you will have no need of the lamp or of sun for light the inheritance of the saints of light god himself is their light they will reign forever and ever your inheritance is to reign in heaven in the presence of god himself of being your light with all the saints From creation until whenever Christ comes back, all the saints will be there with you from every tongue and tribe and nation. Isaiah 25, he will swallow up death forever. He will wipe away tears from all faces in the reproach of his people. He will take away from all the earth for the Lord has spoken and it will be said on that day, behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. And he has then perfectly saved you. He has come for you. Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven. And from heaven we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him subject all things to himself. This is your inheritance. This is sure. This cannot fade away. This cannot depreciate. It cannot be lost in any way because God has qualified you. He has finished it. He has done it. He has given to you this inheritance already in Christ and it cannot be taken away from you. And this then should produce this life that is thankful, joy-filled Paul prays that the Colossians would know the word of God by the spirit of God in such a way that transforms their life to a wholehearted pursuit of God, motivated by who God is and what he has done, and leading to devotion and zealousness for every good work. That is the everyday life for you and for me for the rest of our lives. And we should live that with joy. So he prays that then we would be strengthened and rely wholly on the power of God within them by the Spirit rather than our own weak will. And in all of this, we we must then, he prays, have a general heart attitude, a, a disposition, not of slavish obedience or duty-filled, mustered up work ethic, but irradiating overflowing, abundant and abounding thanksgiving to God and joy for what He has done, for what He is doing and for what is promised surely in heaven that we would then look to glory in our life. So we must strive to obey this We must then pray this for each other and for those believers around the world and let us then prioritize these prayers in how we ask prayer from each other. May God help us this would be a description of our lives. Let's pray. Father, We are thankful. How can we not be? And help us, Lord, where we are not and when we are not. God, you have so richly blessed us in Christ. You have so abundantly provided for us. You have prepared for us a glory beyond all comparison to any trial or suffering in this life. And you've done that to the believers next to us and around this world in pure grace and love and mercy. Not from any goodness, but simply to show your patience and your grace. Lord, everywhere we turn, we see grace and we see mercy that you have poured out richly on us. So Lord, please help us Help us to rely on your spirit to live the kind of life and to pray the type of prayers that are worthy of you, that reflect who you are. We cannot do it by ourselves, Father, but please help us. We need you. Amen.